Welcome to Plato's Pod, where we engage in a group discussion on selections from the complete works of Plato, the philosopher and geometer who wrote nearly 2,400 years ago. Today is June 19, 2022, and I'm your host, James Myers. It's an honor to welcome in dialogue members of the Toronto, Calgary, and Chicago philosophy meetup groups. Whether you have been with us before or are here for the first time, whether you have experience with or are new to Plato's works, I encourage you to add your voice to our dialogue. To speak, I'd ask that you use the raise hands feature in Zoom, and I'll call on you in order using your first name. As always, I've suggested three themes to focus our discussion, which are posted on the shared drive linked to the event notice on meetup.com. As we exchange thoughts in today's reading, I'll briefly summarize and try to connect different perspectives to a common thread of ideas. We can go in any direction the group chooses, but for everyone's benefit, please relate your comments and opinions to Plato's text. After we finish recording in two hours, I welcome anyone who wishes to remain online for Plato's Cafe, a casual half-hour discussion on Plato or philosophy in general. So today is our second of two episodes on Plato's Parmenides, picking up where we left off two weeks ago at 141a. Today also ends season two of our group discussions on Plato's works. Season three launches in September when Plato's pod will return for more dialogues, beginning with the Cratylus, and we'll also cover the laws. I promise though that we're not finished with the Parmenides and having touched on some of its major themes this season, I have a feeling we'll be back to it in season three. In the meantime, Plato's pod will release two fascinating interviews in July and more are planned over the summer before we resume in September. So two weeks ago, we began to consider whether things are not many, in the words of Zeno, or whether all is one, as Parmenides states at the beginning of the dialogue, and whether in fact there is any difference between the two perspectives. But what exactly is the one? And why in the entire dialogue does Plato never give us the meaning of the one when he concludes with the claim that if the one is not, nothing is? He attaches no limits or conditions to this conclusion. And so we might assume that Plato took it to be an absolute universal truth that no thing in the universe would exist to us if the one is not. Although throughout the dialogue, the existence of one, at least in the present state of becoming, is denied. If the one cannot be, how can it not, also of necessity, not be? So today we'll look at some of the logical analyses of the nature of the one under Parmenides' rules of hypothesis to identify the first principle in dialectic. Parmenides leads young Aristotle to hypothesize if each thing is, and also to hypothesize if the same thing is not, and in both cases to examine the hypothetical consequences in relation to the thing itself and to the other. As we follow the trail of their logic, we might recall the words of Parmenides in the Sophist, which we discussed in episodes 11, 12, and 13 of this season. In the Sophist, the visitor from Elia twice quoted Parmenides' admonition that it is unthinkable that that which is not can refer to a negation of being. Being is universal, incapable of negation, and therefore when we say that which is not, we are simply saying that something differs from the thing of which we are speaking. This appears also in the Parmenides beginning at 160c. The form of the different is the most pervasive and versatile of all forms because it is found in every form, and it is by the form of the different that we are able to discern one thing from another thing. As Parmenides states at 146b, everything is surely related to everything as follows. Either it is the same or different, or if it is not the same or different, it would be related as part to whole or as whole to part. So each of the logical analyses that occupy the second half of the Parmenides, beginning with an analysis of whether one is in time or is not in time, invoke the five key forms specified in the sophist, specifically that which is, change, rest, the same, and the different. With respect to the different as the most powerful of all forms, I want to make a proposition for today's discussion, 
and I welcome any challenges or differences in perception. My claim is this, that in the Parmenides, Plato's purpose was that we consider our mind's system of perception in time. Only in time, in the state of becoming, are we able to perceive when all perception is of differences and all differences stand in contrast to the unity of one. Consider in particular the words of Parmenides at 165b. So every being that you grasp in thought must, I take it, be chopped up and dispersed because surely without oneness, it would always be grasped as a mass. Without reference to the unity of one, our perceptions of a thing itself, such as the large and of the character of the thing's parts would always differ and lead to an infinite regress in thought. This, I propose, is the message of what is now known as the third man argument at 132a to c that featured in our discussion two weeks ago. So it's by difference that we distinguish one thing from another, each physical thing having its own limits of action and reaction in equal and opposite measure, each physical thing having its own rate of entropy as it changes from a state of order to disorder, and everything coming to be in opposites, as Socrates stated in the Phaedo. We are incapable of perception of the same because sameness is undifferentiable in the unlimited state of being that is therefore accessible to us only by reason, a point that is made in both the Timaeus and the Republic. As we recall from the Timaeus, specifically at 28a, the state of being is changeless and is therefore not subject to time. Time, as Parmenides reminds us, is a state of perpetual change, except at one point only in which there is neither change nor rest, which Parmenides refers to at 156d as the instant. The instant is a superposition of change and rest, being neither and potentially either. And as such, the instant is ideally suited to human agency in the present. Perception would appear to be suspended in the instant, but resumes when past and future limits in time are reestablished. This is because perception requires a beginning, an end, and a middle, which together constitute the limits of one thing that differentiate it from another thing. And thus we can only perceive differences because we can only perceive limits in the constantly changing state of becoming that divides past from future. There are no limits in the same, in the eternal state of being in equality, and therefore there is no perception, but only reason in the unity of sameness. This leads me to an idea of another term that we might use for the one. But before I raise that, I wonder what you think of my proposition, that all perception is perception of difference and that this is the main point of Parmenides. Do you derive any different conclusions? What do you think of the final words of Parmenides? That if the one is not, then nothing is, in terms of how you perceive the being of any one thing and of all things. What to you is the meaning of the one that occupies this entire dialogue? Is its meaning universal? Two weeks ago, I offered the analogy of the circle as that which has no beginning and no end. Can you offer an analogy for your perception of the one? So I'll put that question out there and just wonder what people think about that and what you think about the conclusion of the Parmenides and whether it has universal application. Are there any thoughts about that? Why don't we read the conclusion together? Let me just put it uh, on the screen here. So I've got it here on the screen. This is 165e to the end. Let's go back to the beginning once more and say what must be the case if one is not, but things other than the one are. Yes, let's do. Well, the others won't be one, obviously not. And surely they won't be many either, since oneness would also be present in things that are many. For if none of them is one, they are all nothing. So they couldn't be many. True. 
But if oneness isn't present in the others, the others are neither many nor one. No, they aren't. Nor even do they appear one or many. Why? Because the others have no communion in any way at all with any of the things that are not, and none of the things that are not belongs to any of the others, since things that are not have no part. True. So no opinion or any appearance of what is not belongs to the others, nor is not being conceived in any way at all in the case of the others. Well, yes, you're quite right. So if one is not, none of the others is conceived to be one or many, since without oneness, it is impossible to conceive of many. Yes, impossible. Therefore, if one is not, the others neither are nor are conceived to be one or many. It seems not. So they aren't like or unlike either. No, they aren't. And indeed, they are neither the same nor different, neither in contact nor separate, nor anything else that they appear to be in the argument that went through before. The others neither are nor appear to be any of these things, if one is not. True. Then if we were to say, to sum up, if one is not, nothing is, wouldn't we speak correctly? Absolutely. Let us then say this, and also that, as it seems, whether one is or is not, it and the others both are and are not, and both appear and do not appear all things in all ways, both in relation to themselves and in relation to each other. Very true. And so ends the Parmenides with this conclusion. What do you make of this, this conclusion, if one is not, nothing is? Is that universal? As I said in my introduction, it seems to me, since Plato did not apply conditions to that conclusion or apply limits to the conclusion, that he intended it to be a universal conclusion. And so how is it universal, if that is in fact the case? What is one meant to be? Steve, your thoughts on that? To me, it sounds like he's just, he's talking about our ability to uh, perceive. So if it's saying it's one, that's one perception. To say it's many, it's another perception. To say it is or it is, you know, if one is not, nothing is. Well, that's all based on definitions of other things. So again, it would get into an infinite regress. But what are you defining nothing as? What are you defining one as? So I think it's not not when it's talking about the nature of reality, it, it's, it can only talk about our uh, ability to interact with that reality. Yeah, I, th I think so. And it's, it's certainly that interaction with reality and the distinction that we make between one and the other. And, and what is it that causes us to make that distinction? I put actually in the, in the, the cover page to today's notes that interesting part from the Phaedo, 97a to b. And in, in the Phaedo, Socrates says that everything comes to be in opposites. And there's that interesting section from the Phaedo in which Socrates talks about the cause of two coming to be. So how is two different from one? And he says there, I am far by Zeus from believing that I know the cause of any of those things. I will not even allow myself to say that where one is added to one, either the one to which it is added or the one that is added becomes two or that the one added and the one to which it is added becomes two because of the addition of the one to the other. And he goes on. So there's an interesting thing, kind of uh, almost an infinite regress there in, in terms of the cause of, of two and the distinction of two from one. And so, you know, if one is a thing and two is a thing, how do we distinguish between those things? Let me just offer by way of analogy, I'll do another screen share here. It's another section of this dialogue. And this is from 151A to 151B. And I'll just read this part and, and then just offer what I thought might be a helpful depiction of it. So uh, this is where Parmenides is, is talking. Furthermore, 
the one would also itself be so in relation to itself. So here we're talking about the relation of one to the other, having neither largeness nor smallness in itself, it would neither be exceeded by nor exceed itself, but being equally matched would be equal to itself, of course. Therefore, the one would be equal to itself and the others, apparently. And yet, since it is in itself, it would also be around itself on the outside. And as a container, it would be greater than itself. But as contained, it would be less. And thus, the one would be greater and less than itself. Yes, it would be. Isn't this necessary, too, that there be nothing outside the one and the others? No doubt. So this is an interesting series of logic here. I mean, how do we, how do we relate what he's saying about the one and the others? He goes on, but surely what is, what is must always be somewhere. Yes then won't that which is in something be in something greater as something less? For there is no other way that something could be in something else. Well, no, there isn't. Since there is nothing else apart from the others and the one, in other words, the others and one are everything, and since they must be in something, must they not in fact be in each other, the others in the one and the one in the others, or else be nowhere? Well, apparently. So on the one hand, because the one is in the others, the others would be greater than the one since they contain it, and the one would be less than the others, since it is contained. So we have this uh, language about container and contained throughout this dialogue. This is one of the examples here. On the other hand, because the others are in the one, by the same argument, the one would be greater than the others, and they less than it. Well, so it seems. Therefore, the one is both equal to and greater and less than itself and the others. So this is a particularly convoluted piece of logic, maybe. And I thought to go back to the statesman, as I mentioned the last time in the, in, in the statesman, the visitor familia says that analogy is sometimes the best way to understand complicated things. And so it seems that there's some very complicated and convoluted logic. One is greater and less than itself, and one is contained in and contained by, and all of this. And so I thought, well, maybe there's a little bit of a clue here in Plato's wording, and it's right near the beginning of this section, that might help us by way of analogy. And that's when he says, and yet, since it is in itself, it would also be around itself on the outside. And as a container, it would be greater than itself. And so here, again, I thought of the circle, which I, I drew in the last session as well. So we have the circle, which is uh, 2 pi. Everybody knows the circle is 2 pi, or 360 degrees. So I've drawn a circle here. And let's put one inside the circle. So one is contained by the circle, one is contained by two pi, and pi of course is irrational and it's also transcendental. So it's never really, pi never really reaches an end, but the the circumference does seem to form a container, but it's a, it's a limitless container in a sense. And so if we've got one inside the container, let's maybe just find the middle point of the container there, I'll just draw that with a little dot. And then let's put the others outside the container. And so if this is perception, we've got one contained and others outside the container. Now, how do we connect? How do we relate the one to the others? And this is where I thought, well, maybe, maybe a little bit of geometry here so that if we draw a cross inside the container, 90 degrees right through the center like that, then we've got the potential to exceed that irrational and transcendental limit of 2 pi at 90 degrees, both vertically and horizontally. And then we've also got the capacity at 45 degrees. It's kind of an asymptotic capacity here to be equal. And therefore, you know, what could we say about the midpoint of that circle? The midpoint of that circle in this particular analogy would belong to the one, but it would also belong to the others, it would seem. 
And, and so I don't know if this type of analogy is helpful in relation to that particular section from 150A to, to B. In terms of both the way that we approach the logic of, of Plato in this particular dialogue, which is very complex, and so maybe reducing it to some sort of analogy in this way might be helpful. And so I offer that as, as maybe one way of thinking about it. Steve, what are your thoughts on this or, or anything else? Just on that drawing, it seems, I mean, it's contradictory. And if you're saying it's one, how could, how could it be one if there's something other? So it can't really be the one if there's others, because by definition, the one is seem that one should be everything. So, but you're saying that one is not everything. So it's almost like a contradictory statement there. Yeah, and understand. And, and I'm thinking that perhaps it's the, the fact that the one that the, the container of one is the way that we define things. So we're defining things by a circle but the circle is two pi and two pi is irrational and transcendental. So the container doesn't really have a limit in, in universal truth. It doesn't really have a limit. But in our, in our thought process, we can put one in that container. We can say everything inside that two pi limit is one and everything outside that two pi limit is other. But they relate to each other because they, they're always in communion with one, other, one another. I think that's the, one of the terms that Parmenides uses, in communion. Everything outside that circle is other, but it's always touching the circle as is one inside the circle. So there is that relationship of one to the other, but the distinction between one and the other is the circumference of the circle. So that's, that's the way I'm thinking about it. But, you know, as I say, it's, it's just an analogy and others may find other ways of thinking about this analogy or, or any other analogies that might be applicable. JK, your thoughts? Yeah, if the one is inclusive, right, then it must also include the other. And also, if the one is, as he argued, uh, at rest and also in motion at the same time, then that would, uh, the one, the, the definition of the one would must change and include the others. So the other would be the, perhaps it's opposite, the not nothingness. So if you say, instead of others, you say the others are, are not nothing, then you have to redefine the one in terms of motion or just define uh, the one as inclusive. But if it's at rest, then you'd have to, uh, yeah, you would have to include what, what is outside of it. But particularly, especially when it's, if it's in motion, then you would justify that, um, that inclusiveness by change to include the others, which would be the opposite of the one, um, uh, which is nothingness. So that's a question that I just want to raise. Mm -hmm. and, and certainly in your question, you've used the, the forms of change and rest as opposites. And that's something that maybe we can go to next is looking at the, um, I've got a, a particular a section that I particularly liked on the nature of time. And I mentioned that in my introduction, this idea of the instant from 156C to 157B, in which the, the instant is defined as a point at which neither change nor rest occur, but the potential of either exists. And I found that a fascinating section just to make us think about the nature of time itself. And as I said in the introduction, our perception, I think, is perception over time. We're only capable of perceiving over time. And so in this analogy that I've drawn, the one I've put inside the circle, the others I've put outside the circle, so the others are not one, 
and one is not the others because they're they're separated by the the circle. There, there's some separation in our perception of of things. So one is one thing, and others are are other things. But there is that connection in in my drawing. That connection is the very point in the middle of the circle, which connects both to the circumference of the circle, so connects to the limits of one, but also connects to the others. So just because they are separate things doesn't mean that there isn't relation between them. And that's, I think that's what I was trying to show. Now we can look at that in the context of, of change and rest, you know, which are the two of the five key forms that are presented in the sophist, which I think are essential to the analysis that Parmenides provides throughout this dialogue in discussion with young Aristotle. In, in, in each of those analyses, he uses those five key forms, that which is change, rest, the same and the different. And, and my point here is that the different is how we perceive things. And so the fact that in this analogy, I put a circle around the one that causes the difference. And, and it allows us to perceive the one as distinct from the others. Without that circle, there would be no distinction. The one would just simply run into the others and they would be indistinguishable, undifferentiable. And so because we've got a circle, I'm thinking that that, that helps us to distinguish one from the other, even though there is no universal separation between them because the circle is incommensurable and transcendental. And, and so it, it's not a finite limit. It's an infinite limit, I guess, if we, if we might think about it that way. And it makes me think of our discussion last time. I think it was, I think it was you, JK, actually, who introduced last time the idea of infinite logic. And I think Jose G took up that question and asked whether there can be such a thing as infinite logic. And maybe in this sense, in the context of a circle that differentiates one thing from another thing, maybe that is an example of infinite logic in the sense that the, the ratio of the circumference to the diameter never ends. And here, you know, we, we have to remember here, I think that Plato was a geometer. And, and so it, it wouldn't surprise me if, if he had thought of things like this in, in his analogy. And certainly, I think the words that he's used in this section when he says that it would be around itself on the outside and as a container, it would be greater than itself, but as contained, it would be less. So we've got this you know, the greater than and less than contained in a circle. But I just thought this might be a helpful way of, of thinking about it. So Darlene, your thoughts? Uh, more of a question. Um, is it that those lines are more like strings draped uh, across over a balloon and not really divide? Is Are they not really dividing up the circle, but is it should I visualize it more like strings going over the across the balloon, but kind of draped over the balloon? I really like that question, Darlene. It, it's uh, because when I say circle, I'm I'm talking about something in two dimensions. But of course, we live in three dimensions of space, and so three dimensions. When you take a when you when you take a circle and you expand it into three dimensions, you get a sphere, which would be the balloon in in the words that you used and. That analogy of the string around the balloon, I think, is particularly helpful when we think of our existence in three dimensions of space. So the strings would always connect. You could always wrap those strings around the balloon or the sphere. You know, I've got the, the two, the, the cross at 90 degrees in the middle, and then I've got the 45 degree angles asymptotically equal to the rest. And so if you were wrap, you were to wrap those strings around that balloon, you could get an infinite wrapping. The, the wrapping would never stop. So I really like that question and really like the way you, you put that analogy. I think it's very helpful to, to relate it to our existence in three dimensions of space. And, and certainly the sphere 
relates very particularly to the five platonic solids that Plato brought to us in Timaeus. The five platonic solids, or he didn't call them platonic, we call them platonic now after him, because he was the first to introduce them in, in the Timaeus. He introduced the only five solids in the universe, all of the vertices of which touch inside a sphere. So they are the only five objects in the entire universe whose vertices touch the inside of the sphere, or to use your analogy, Darlene, inside a balloon. And so if we've got these strings wrapped outside the balloon and we've got the five solids inside the balloon, what do we have? We've got a lot of potential, I would think. How do others see it? Well, let's, let's take a look at the section. I'll just go back here to, to the notes for today's session. And I'll go to the, the part that I put at the beginning, which is I've entitled it Time in the One. And this is from 156C to 157B. And this brings to mind what JK was talking about in terms of motion and, and rest, or change and rest, because uh, change is a, is a form of motion. And, and by the way, in, in the Theotetus, motion was described as either change in position or change in state. So there, there's really two types of motion. We, we think of motion maybe spatial motion as change in position, but it can also be change in state. So I'll just read this from 156C to 157B, because I really find this fascinating. As I said in the introduction, time appears throughout this dialogue, and I think it's essential to understanding because our perception occurs through time. It, it's not, it, our perception depends on time. If there were not time and if there were not changes or differences in time, then how would we perceive? I mean, that, that's the question I'm asking. If anyone has a method of perception that does not involve differences through time, then let's discuss that. I'd be very interested because as I think of my perception, my perception is entirely based on difference. If I were to see something that is the same, if, if I were to look out in the universe and everything were the same, then what would I be able to perceive? There, there would be no limits. I wouldn't be able to perceive anything. So it's this, it's this change and rest and, and, the, and the difference between change and rest that I think is particularly important to perception. So I'll just read the section from 156C to 157B. Whenever being in motion, it comes to a rest. Whenever being at rest, it changes to moving. It must itself presumably be in no time at all. How is that? It won't be able to undergo being previously at rest and later in motion, or being previously in motion and later at rest without changing. Well, obviously not. Yet there is no time in which something can simultaneously be neither in motion nor at rest. Well, yes, you're quite right. It surely it also doesn't change without changing. Well, hardly. So when does it change? For it does not change while it is at rest or in motion or while it is in time. Well, yes, you're quite right. There is then this queer thing in which it might be just when it changes. What queer thing? The instant. The instant seems to signify something such that changing occurs from it to each of two states. For a thing doesn't change from rest while rest continues or from motion while motion continues. Rather, this queer creature, the instant, lurks between motion and rest, being in no time at all. And to it and from it, the moving thing changes to resting and the resting thing changes to moving. It looks that way. And the one, if in fact it both rests and move, moves, could change to each state. For only in this way could it do both. But in changing, it changes at an instant. And when it changes, it would be in no time at all. And just then, it would be neither in motion nor at rest. No, it wouldn't. Is it so with the other changes too? Whenever the one changes from being to ceasing to be, or from not being to coming to be, isn't it then between certain states of motion and rest? And then it neither is nor is not, and neither comes to be nor ceases to be. It seems so at any rate. 
Indeed, according to the same argument, when it goes from one to many and from many to one, it is neither one nor many, and neither separates nor combines. And when it goes from like to unlike and from unlike to like, it is neither like nor unlike, nor is it being made like or unlike. And when it goes from small to large and to equal and vice versa, it is neither small nor large nor equal, nor would it be increasing or decreasing or being made equal. It seems not. The one, if it is, could undergo all of that, doubtless. So I wanted to read that, and, and it, it presents this particular notion of time, the instant, as being not really part of time. It, it's the part where time separates, and anything is possible in, in the instant. It, it's two states at the same time. It brought me immediately to think of my favorite qubit, which really is, I guess, similar in, in ways to the analogy that I drew on the screen a few minutes ago of the circle, which Darlene equated to the balloon. So here we've got in the qubit a sphere, and we've got two states at once, again, to pick up the words that, that Plato used in this particular section, two states at once, at the particular point in the middle of this sphere at which the X plane equals the Y plane equals the Z plane. So there's three planes converge to this particular point right in the middle. And I really thought of that as very similar to the analogy that I, that I just drew. And so I wonder what we think of this concept of time, this, this particular instant at which, as I said in my introduction, it seems as if perception would have to suspend in the instant. We're not capable of perceiving unless we're perceiving in time. And so during this particular instant where either state is possible and there is no change because either state is possible, is there no perception? And is that the point where we are able to exercise our agency and, and really bring our thoughts together? So I wanted to present that as a really fascinating way of presenting time. So Steve, what do you think about this? Well, on the uh, perception or as examples about motion and rest, it's from a perceptual state of view or frame. And, you know, when they, when they're talking at this time, when they think they're at rest, they're not really at rest. You know, the earth is moving through space. And this is making analogies based on really you know, false information. So, don't, so that doesn't necessarily prove any cases relative to uh, what the nature of change is. And the other thing is, all of this depends on having an it. It's all talking about making a measurement. So once you're making a measurement, you're, you're deciding on a point in time, then you're no longer in a quantum state. You're in a classical state. You've not, you know, there is not that mythical qubit, you know, so I don't know if there's any, you know, analogies that can be drawn from what happens in quantum states of matter to what's happening in our, call it classical for classical physics in our, our normal everyday life. So I, I don't know if these, this analogy uh, holds true at all. Well, thanks for that. And I really like the point that you made that measurement requires a point in time for reference. And, and does that mean that measurement then requires a difference. How are you going to measure something if there's no difference? Again, to go back to my little thought experiment, experiment about the universe, if the universe were just single, one single thing which was indistinguishable from anything else with no differences, then there would be nothing to measure because we would always need limits to measure by, right? And so to me, this seemed as a way of saying that 
there exists this thing that we call the instant, which is not measurable. It's not measurable. It's, it's maybe the, the point where our minds have the agency to measure or not to measure as we so choose in the instant. But once we make a measurement, then that requires, as you said, I think a point in time. So maybe I, I, I see it as consistent, I think maybe with the words that are presented in this particular section. But I really think that the, that the way you put that, that measurement requires a point in time, I think is very helpful. Well, we can maybe explore this further because there, the, the next section here from 153A to 154B that I selected, I, I thought was pretty interesting. And this is how we discern the, the order of things in time. This is the way I'm reading this particular section. And maybe I'll just read the first paragraph of this. So this follows shortly after the part that I just read. And again, what of the others? Well, I can't say. This much, surely you can say. Things other than the one, if in fact they are different things and not a different thing, are more than one. A different thing would be one, but different things are more than one and would have multitude. Well, yes, they would. And being a multitude, they would partake of a greater number than the one, doubtless. Now, shall we say in connection with number that things that are more or things that are less come to be and have come to be earlier? Well, things that are less. So the least thing first, and this is the one. Isn't that so? Yes. So of all the things that have number, the one has come to be first. And the others, too, all have number, if in fact they are others and not an other. Well, yes, they do. But that which has come to be first, I take it, has come to be earlier, and the others later. And things that have come to be later are younger than what has come to be earlier. Thus the others would be younger than the one, and the one older than they. Yes, it would. So a really interesting section, just again, about I found the, the statement in particular. So of all the things that have number, the one has come to be first. So the one has this precedence to all other things. Without the one, the other things would not be able to proceed. In, in a way, it's saying, as, as he says later in the dialogue, that for there to be a multitude, there has to be one. If there is not one, how could you have multiples of one? Because a multiple is of something, right? It, it may go back to the question that I... I was trying to get at in this opening question that I had in the last episode, do you believe that there is one universe or a multiverse? And I wonder if, if there's a belief that there's a multiverse, then what is it a multiple of? A multiple has to be of something. And do all multiples necessarily begin at one? And that's maybe, it's a mathematical question as much as it's a logical question. And I'm just wondering what, what we think about that. JK, your thoughts? Yeah, this, this didn't make sense to me when I first read it. But now I, now I realize that it's very, it's very simple. Um, I mean, very basic. What he's saying is the one is, the one is uh, you know, is the beginning of all the others. And so, of course, the, the, all the others would be younger, right, than the one, because they come later, just like the new generations are going to be younger than the, the ones that have, uh, came before them that generated them, right? So that would make sense that there has to be a one before there could be any other others that are multiples of the one. So I'm trying to connect this with what, the other, what we're saying about the other things. Um, 
So would, uh, would time be an element of this other, whereas in the one, there doesn't have to be, right? A, 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 the element of time doesn't necessarily come into being with the one. But with the others, the time would be introduced, right? Because of the change and the motion and the, um, the multiplicity would uh, occur through time, right? And through, through motion, whereas the one originally it would be at rest, but it would also undergo change. And there would still be one, but uh, it would undergo some modification or change. I think I think that's a good question, you know. And, and and so as you're saying it, I think the way I understand the question: Does one require time or not? Whereas the others seem to require time because the others come about through change. The others come after one, so the others are younger than one. One is the oldest in in terms of generation of things. So. Does one require time? And I mean, I, I would answer that no. And I would I would relate that. I think that that question that you asked is a very good question. I would relate that to time AS 28A, that distinction between being and becoming. So there is no time in being. There's no difference in time and being. Being is all of time, whereas becoming has a past, present, and future. And so we are in this three dimensions of space and single dimension of time that we exist in, uh, we are in that state of becoming. We are not in the state of timeless being. And so I think what is being alluded to here is that one is in that timeless state of being. There is no change in the one, but one is the source of all change and the, and the, and the end of all change is in the one. And again, I think of that that diagram I drew of the circle in which I placed one and I put the others outside the circle, but they all tie to that midpoint in the circle. And that midpoint in the circle, in my thinking, has no time. And then if you expand that to a balloon or a sphere, again, to use Darlene's words, again, in that sphere, that very middle point would have no time. Steve? So if there was, you're saying time, being is timeless. If there was no time, how could there be being? If there was no time, how could there be being? So like say before the Big Bang, mm -hmm. when there was no time, you know, as far as our knowledge goes, there was no being. So the idea that in order for something to be, there must be time or there, there would be no being. That's a good question. You know, and, and if there was no time before the Big Bang, then how did time suddenly appear? There's no, there's no theory. There's no but, you know, but just to, you know, to say that time, that being is timeless, how can you conceive of being without there being any time? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And, and an excellent question. An excellent question that, you know, because again, in Time AS 20, 28A, as well as in the Republic, as well as in the Phaedo, it said that we can only comprehend that realm of being, that timeless, eternal realm of being, we can only comprehend it by reason. And so as we think back to the beginning of the universe or of a multiverse, whichever way we want to think about it, again, a multiple of what, as we think back to the beginning, did time all of a sudden appear? And so what, what differentiated this time that is, now, that is now with us to the timelessness that was before? Something had to separate it, right? So that's, that's a good question. There's no right or wrong answers, I don't think, right now about it. Nobody's proven it one way or the other. The Big Bang, I guess, is, is the best way we have of thinking about the beginning of the universe. But then there's also the theory of what's called the Big Bounce instead of the Big Bang. And the Big Bounce, 
would say that the universe just goes on infinitely, but it squeezes down to one single point. So the time just squeezes down to one single point and then just emerges again. So it never ends. Think about it as maybe the, the wave function in quantum mechanics. So the wave function continues going, squeezes down to one point, and then explodes again as a wave. So it never disappears. And that's called the big bounce theory, bouncing to a small point and then bouncing back. There would be no separation required in that. It's all just that continuous point and without separation. So it would be a continuum. So how would that be? How would being be timeless even in that scenario? Well, being would be that single point, I think, in that scenario. That's the way I would see it anyway. But that's part of time. In your theory, it's like it's a continuum of time. So at no, no point, you know, if that point is just part of a spot along the wave function, then mm -hmm. it's still part of time. So anyways. No, and, and, and a good question. I think time is where limits are introduced. So somehow limits are introduced to that point. And so maybe the point establishes its own limits. And, and I've got some excerpts from the, uh, from the Parmenides dialogue about limits. I think there's an important point that Plato is trying to make about limits so that time is where we have limits and being is where there is no limits. And somehow both time and being, time being that with limits and being, being unlimited are connected. And again, in that analogy, I think that's the midpoint of that circle or the sphere. But let's, let's look for what others think about this as well and, and uh, any other points or analogies that you might have to offer. JK? Yeah, it's just like we're talking about the one, the ultimate one, would it have to include uh, all the others? And uh, so we're talking about being that uh, is both perhaps timeless and also part of the, the creativity of, of time. So there's no limit on what, how you would define what the ultimate being is. So the Big Bang would just be in perhaps another an, an instance of that kind of state of timelessness that produces a creation of time, they say a, uh, a creation of time, of beings in time. So there's this idea of being with a capital B as the limitless and infinite time, time of being or yeah, the infinity of a timeless being. Yeah, there's, a, there's an element of uh, necessary becoming and creativity and timelessness in this, this idea of being that, uh, that becomes. I think for me, these, all these arguments come down to saying that there's both being and becoming, and they're part of the big picture. And our perceptions are limited. We can only understand certain elements of this uh, process that includes both uh, being and becoming. I think you, you put that in an interesting way, especially at, I think at the beginning where, if I understood you correctly, you were saying that the Big Bang is an example of the instant. And so maybe the Big Bang is the first instant. If we go back to that section from 156C to 157B, when Parmenides was talking about the instant, is the Big Bang, that very point of the Big Bang, or the Big Bounce, however we might want to see it, is that the first instant? Is that that superposition of change and rest where neither is, but there is the potential of either. And, and are they trying to say something here about the difference between potential and, and that which we perceive as reality, which is you know, realized potential, maybe we could think of it that way. And I was gonna say, you know, I said in my opening remarks that I was gonna propose or bring forth a, another term for the one, and maybe I'll just raise it here to see what people think about it. And, and that is, as I, as I read through this dialogue multiple times, I'm really led to think that the one is potential. 
that's the word that I just keeps coming to mind as I read this. The one is potential. And, and so when I think about that conclusion of this dialogue, if the one is not, then nothing is. If I replace the word, the one, or the, the term, the one with potential, if potential is not, then nothing is. But, you know, as I said in the introduction, throughout the analyses that they proceed to discuss throughout the second part of this dialogue that we're looking at today, they keep saying that the one cannot be, the, the, one, not, the one cannot be in this realm of becoming, this physical realm of becoming that we occupy in three dimensions of space and one dimension of time. The one cannot exist in that state of becoming, but potential can't exist because then it wouldn't be, then it wouldn't be potential. But potential still is always there. And, and certainly we cannot have a state in which there is no potential. Because once potential ends, then time ends. Maybe that's one way of thinking of the one. And I just wonder what you think about that, JK? Yeah, I like that word uh, potential, that uh, it would uh, suggest something of Plato's forms, but also quantum mechanics, you know, the electrons have this potential to, you know, which means that it has the, all these possibilities of functioning. You don't know what's going to happen until that does happen. There's so, so many possibilities for them to go. There's a, and they call it the randomness, but maybe it's a kind of a potential to uh, exercise a free choice to go one way or the other, right? And that's why they, they can't figure out where the, uh, what the electron is at any, any instant. You, have a, you, you might understand one side of it, but then don't, don't know its position. So because it exercises its potential possibilities, uh, like the Schrodinger cap, you don't know what's going to happen until you open the box and look at it and then collapse those potentials down to your observation of a cap. So, uh, yeah, I think some people call it uh, virtual. Some philosophers call it the virtual. Some more recent philosophers call it eternal objects. So they kind of relate to the forms, but um, a little bit not exactly like the forms, but there is that potential there for possibilities of action and function. Interesting way of, of connecting that also to Heisenberg's uncertainty principle, but the more we know about the position of something, less we know about its momentum and vice versa. And so there's always seems to be potential in, in our knowledge. Knowledge never becomes absolute. And so we always have to continue to seek and learn, as Socrates implores us to do in the Mino, because we can never have that absolute knowledge. Absolute knowledge, or if, if it existed, would only exist in that realm of being which is not bound by time. But once we get into this realm of time in which there are limits that we're dealing with, time always has a beginning and an end, right? The past and the future. And the past and the future is always equally divided by the present. And so we're always dealing with limits in time. So, you know, as I'm perceiving the whole purpose of this dialogue is to show how we deal with perception of limits in time. But once we get outside of those limits, we're just dealing with pure potential. And potential, though, is, I think, really the domain of the mind. Is, is there any limit of potential in the mind in our thinking? I, I can't really think of, well, I mean, there, there are, I use the word think, you know, so I get into a regress, you know, if I think of a limit in, in potential, I can't think of a limit in potential. That's by universal design. And maybe that's part of what is being said in the Timaeus in particular about the, about the design of the universe is that it is designed with, with this potential embedded in it. And we need to sort out our understanding of, of potential. And in particular, I think the order of things that occur within that potential, I think that's, to me, that's important to knowledge is to know the order of things that cause and effect. 
to go back to that that excerpt that I read a little bit earlier from Phaedo 97a to b, Socrates is musing about the cause of two. You know, is it one plus one? What's added first? What comes first? What comes second? Maybe that's the real challenge that we have in our knowledge and the real opportunity that we have in knowledge is to understand the order of things in time. And, and once we do that, then we approach that more pure state of knowledge. Yeah, to tie that back to the, the hard problem of uh, consciousness, they talk about consciousness as this kind of uh, potentiality of, mm-hmm. of exercising a free choice uh, in terms of future possibility, and that it is something that is uh, perhaps embedded into the most basic quantum elements in physics, that it suggests a kind of a psychopantheism, that consciousness is not just in our heads, but it's everywhere, and we're, we come into existence uh, inherent with what they call consciousness, which is difficult to define and, and reduce to some bodily uh, neurological function. Certainly, I think as we progress more in our understanding of quantum mechanics and into developing a quantum computer that I've talked about a lot, we will, I think, have to confront the observer effect, which is that effect when we, when we view a beam of light that's being split through two slots in a, in a barrier, that act of observation changes the scattering pattern of, those, uh, of the light wave versus if we did not observe it. And so that's the observer effect. And so we will need to understand that. But I think that leads to then an understanding of the position of consciousness in the construction of the universe. Is, is consciousness something separate and apart from the physical universe? Or is it connected to the physical universe? So we know a lot about the operation of the physical universe. We know how a lot about how it works, but we don't know, I think, as much about how the mind connects to that. Is the mind something that is separate from the physical, or is there somehow a connection between the physical? And I think maybe that's something that we will have to discover or uncover very soon as we get further down the path of being able to manipulate the universe at the quantum level. The the quantum is just the, it's the smallest packet of energy that has the capacity to effect change or to be changed. And that actually reminds me, I think, of what Socrates said in the sophist, or the visitor from Elia said in the sophist about being or becoming is, is that which becomes is that which can either effect change or be changed. And so certainly in the definition of the quantum, it is that smallest bit of energy that has that capacity of change. And as we get to that level, we will really have to understand what causes that change and what the role of consciousness is, or at least of conscious action is in that change. And then once we're talking about change, so that's one of the five forms in the sophist, and then the opposite of change is rest. And then when we have rest, we get the same. When we have change, we get the difference. So there's four of the forms in from the sophist, and then they all tie to that which is, which is the fifth form in the sophist. And so I think it's pretty fundamental. I just want to highlight a little bit further down in this section from 153a to 154b, two paragraphs down. I'll just read this. But again, must not a beginning or any other part of the one or of anything else, if in fact it is a part and not parts, be one since it is a part? necessarily. Accordingly, the one would come to be at the same time as the first part that comes to be, and at the same time as the second, and it is absent from none of the others that come to be, no matter what is added to what, until, upon arriving at the last part, it comes to be one whole, having been absent at the coming to be of neither the middle 
nor the first, nor the last, nor any other part. True. Therefore, the one is the same age as all the others. And so, unless the one itself is naturally contrary to nature, it would have come to be neither earlier nor later than the others, but at the same time. And according to this argument, the one would be neither older nor younger than the others, nor the others older or younger than it. But according to our previous argument, it was both older and younger than they, and likewise, they were both older and younger than it, of course. Then they go on in the next paragraph, that's how it is and has come to be. But what about its coming to be both older and younger, and neither older nor younger than the others, and they than it? Is the case with coming to be just as it is with being, or is it different? Well, I can't say. But I can say this much, at least. If something is indeed older than another thing, it could not come to be still older by an amount greater than the original difference in age, nor in turn could the younger come to be still younger. For equals added to unequals in time or anything else at all always make them differ by an amount equal to that by which they differed at first. So this is a bit of convoluted logic. They're starting to contradict what they said earlier, that the one is the oldest, and now they're saying, well, the one comes to be at the same time as the others. And then they're talking about, well, okay, then there's a difference in time between the one and the others. And here, right at the end of what I just read, Parmenides is talking about the difference between equals and unequals. And then later on in the dialogue, as Plato does throughout his other dialogues, they start talking about the even and the odd as differences in number. And there was one point in this dialogue where I'll have to find the part. There's a part where he says that with even and odd number, you can make all number from even an odd number. Maybe there is an idea here of one being part of everything, but unequal. And so because of this inequality, which we see in Heisenberg's uncertainty principle, there's an inequality in the mathematical expression of Heisenberg's uncertainty principle. Maybe that inequality is built into the universe and maybe it's part of what gives us agency to cause difference is that inequality. Because again, if if everything had to happen in equal measures, as it does in physics, physics has to happen in equal and opposite measures of action and reaction. But if everything were subject to that rule, then would we really have agency? Would there really be such a thing as free will and, and that ability of us to do to affect change? Or would every change that we make be subject to an opposed change that would automatically happen. And therefore, our agency would really be limited in that case. So I raise that, you know, again, because of this discussion about number here. And again, about the discussion of the precedence of one in all number, and certainly in time. So again, how we think about the one and and whether we think about it as potential, rather than as a physical thing, and in the order of all things. It's a really interesting aspect of this dialogue and Plato's other dialogues is the use of the word thing. Thing really has such a broad definition. There's no limit, I think, to what we could call a thing. And so is it really all about our system of perception and that the names and the words that we use to describe reality as we see it? And if we don't have some sort of system to these words, some sort of ability to establish some sort of common understanding of the words, then how do we communicate with each other? And if communication is the only means by which the soul has to operate, then then the soul would be really constrained if there was no kind of rules or system to this communication. And that's what makes me think, again, that the whole purpose of this dialogue is really about our system of understanding the distinction between one thing and another, and another thing. Steve. So my reaction would be that 
do things have any inherent existence? So things are only things by how we categorize them relative to other things. We objectify things and we, they have no inherent isness of themselves per se, other than how they have relationships. We make definition to other things. And then saying that the idea, again, that there is a soul is creating the idea of a thing. And that soul would have no inherent existence, neither would consciousness. And I think that the thoughts of describing reality that's based on consciousness is cognitive bias. That's just our perception as the fact that we are conscious is us implying that everything has to have some consciousness has some higher status that just because we happen to be perceiving and we have defined something as a consciousness means that the rest of the vast universe has to have some connection. And as we're seeing things relative to other things on some conscious understanding, we're putting some greater value on that in creating a soul or having some higher value than, than other things, even though there's not necessarily any uh, again, you get into circular logic to, to try and prove that that has any greater value than any other arbitrary thing in the universe. Well, two good points there. And I think to the, to the point that you made about consciousness, is that a, if I understand the point correctly, is it a necessary precedent for anything to exist? In other words, if there were no consciousness, would anything exist? That's yeah. just correct. That's not what yeah. I was saying. Okay. I wasn't saying things don't exist if there's no consciousness. I'm right. saying we we explain reality relative to consciousness because we're we're functioning. We've described ourselves as conscious beings. So I'm not saying that reality won't exist if there was no consciousness. I'm saying that our view is very limited, and we have you know a very biased view of what reality is because we define everything based on us saying that we are conscious. So reality doesn't go away if we're not conscious of it. We're not, we're not, that's the bias. That's our ego saying that we're essential to the existence of the universe because of our consciousness, because of our beingness or becomingness. Thank you. I was thinking of the statement that Einstein made, does the moon exist only if we look at it? That was his response to the Copenhagen interpretation of quantum mechanics, where observation causes the waveform to, to collapse. I think we were thinking along the same lines there, that it's not dependent on our conscious presence. But perhaps maybe more what you're talking about then reminds me of the question in the Theotetus that Protagoras asks, is, is man the measure of all things? As you said, there is some sort of bias in there that we base things on our perception, on our conscious perception, which can be flawed. And again, maybe this is Plato's way of leading us out of those perceptual errors into a, a higher understanding of the basis of all things, which is not based on consciousness, but certainly our ability to perceive uh, employs consciousness. And so how do we consciously undo those biases that may be built into the, 
the five senses in particular, because there's lots of talk about the errors that the five senses make throughout Plato's dialogues, or the illogic that believing necessarily what the five senses say is the only way of perceiving things. So that takes us from the realm of becoming, which is where we exercise the five senses, into the realm of being, where we don't use the five senses, but we use the sense of reason, which is in the mind alone. So that's not a physical sense. So maybe it's a way of combining that reason, which is in the soul, with the five senses that are in the body, and in combining the soul, which is part of consciousness, and the body, the body, which is part of the state of becoming. It's a way maybe of combining those two in terms of understanding a higher order of being. Maybe that's the way I'm understanding it. I think the other the other point you asked at the beginning is whether all things have an inherent existence. And that makes me think of the debate between the particle view of physics and the quantum wave view of physics. And the particle view of physics says that there's all of these particles, there's a zoo of particles, they call them like protons and electrons and neutrons and anti-electrons and anti-protons. And there's just a whole lot of particles. And so the question there is, did all of these particles come into existence at the beginning of the universe? And if so, what caused the difference between these particles? Something separates them, one particle from the other. Or the, the other view that's maybe emerging in this whole debate is the view that the universe is one unified quantum field. Each quantum is the same as every other quantum, but it's just the organization of the quanta that are different. Quanta can organize in different limits so that they they have a different effect. They may appear as particles, but they're all just single individual quanta, each one the same as the other. It's just that they're organized in a different way. And I'm seeing in this section that I just read, uh, you know, about the order of things in time, I'm, I'm seeing that kind of perception of the unified quantum field rather than the inherent existence from the beginning of time of individual particles. It's all unresolved. I mean, it's, there's a lot of brilliant analyses and good points on, on both sides of the debate. So something I think that's very relevant to today's scientific analysis and exploration of the nature of the universe. JK. Yeah, I guess um, what uh, I understand interpret what uh, Steve is saying is that there's a, a certain limitation to our perception and understanding of reality. And that, you know, in this dialogue, the idea that reason itself can understand everything, that there's somehow reason perhaps has no, is not taking into account its own limitations. Later with Kant, Kant is, uh, comes along and says, well, yeah, we receive reality through these uh, categories of understanding. And there is a limitation on how we can understand reality. We don't understand ultimate reality because of these categories that limit us in how we see the world. So there are other ways, maybe other faculties for understanding, understanding what the, um, at least truer, what the reality is. You know, I think uh, Bergson, Henry Bergson mentioned um, uh, intuition, which is closer to what is uh, an instinctual kind of cognitive or perceptual or emotional, intuitive feeling, intuitive way of understanding that cuts through the, the rational, that goes around the rational and is able to maybe um, perceive duration or the kind of uh, experience of what life is, like closer to with the animal's instincts for responding to um, material reality. Yeah, maybe that's that kind of uh, intuition is referred to in the, uh, the Tao Te Ching, you know, if you... Uh, you have a certain way of looking at the world with a certain um, attitude, then you see the whole. 
if you have another way of looking at the world with a certain different desire, different kinds of different kind of attitude, then you'll you'll see the many. But in either case, you can understand the whole by taking into account your own perceptual limitations. And so maybe that's that that applies to even in quantum mechanics, so that we're approaching it with a certain kind of attitude. That's why they have what eight or nine different interpretations from renowned scientists that uh, that have competing interpretations of what the quantum is. Maybe we're all trying to get to that that true understanding of, of reality. Indeed, and I, I think, you know, that's coming, that has to come very soon. You know, the, the closer we get to the quantum computer, the closer we're going to have to get to that answer. I really, really like the way you put that, JK. It, it ties to so many things that we've talked about. Intuition is a term that you used, and I, I would introduce maybe an equivalent, which is analogy, or, or in some sense, it's equivalent. And I exercised an analogy with a circle. Darlene exercised an analogy with a balloon with the strings on it. And I think in both cases, hopefully those are of some help in taking us from these limitations of reason that you talked about. I'd like the way that you brought Kant into the explanation. So if our reason is based on categories, then maybe that, that makes us think of the third man argument at 132a to c in, in the Parmenides, where there's a problem if we think of a category as well as the thing. If we think of the category as separate from the thing, then we get into an infinite recursion in our thought. So somehow we have to think of category and thing as somehow the same, but how do we do that? Because we categorize by the thing and we, we understand the thing by the category. So how do we do that? And I think the answer that Plato's providing is by the form of the different. And so again, that's repeated in uh, section 160 of the Parmenides as well as in the Sophist. That which is not is really just a way of saying that which is different and or other. In, in that in that analogy that I drew at the beginning, I put one in the circle and I put other outside of the circle, but they're always touching each other, one and the other. And so maybe that's a way of uniting category and, and uniting our sense of reason so that we can account for things without running into these limitations and without running into this infinite, infinite recursion of thought. Is, is by focusing instead on the different. And, and that goes to the, the thesis that I presented at the beginning, that we perceive by differences, not by the same, we perceive by differences, and differences require limits. And then I think also you mentioned rationality, and rationality, I guess, requires that we be able to compare one thing to another thing absolutely. So to think about it in mathematical terms, one thing lines up with another thing, it derives a fraction that each are each are whole parts of a fraction, and then the fraction comes into a whole. But then we've got in mathematics things that are irrational, such as the two pi circumference of a circle is irrational. And so irrationality exists, certainly mathematically and geometrically in the universe, and why I guess wouldn't it also exist in consciousness, which isn't to mean that it's a negative thing in that sense. It's just that there is no absolute end in that sense. Once we get into something that's irrational, like the square root of two, three, or five, those are irrational. They produce continuing fractions. So there's no end to the fraction, but then is there an end to the universe? Well, maybe irrationality is really absolutely necessary to a universe that continues for all of time and for being that exists regardless of time. 
to bring us back to an earlier discussion. So I thought that was particularly helpful. And then the other thing you raised is how does reason comprehend things? And I think that maybe there's a lesson here in the Parmenides in this method of hypothesis that Parmenides establishes early in the dialogue that you have to hypothesize if the thing is and if the thing is not. And then you have to examine the consequences in either case, if the thing is or the thing is not, both in relation to the thing that is and the thing that is not, and vice versa. So you have to do this hypothesizing. And maybe, again, that's intuition that you're talking about. So I really like the way that you put that. I think it really ties so many concepts together in, in ways that, that we can are very helpful to understanding and that we can really work with and, and build on. I just wanted to highlight another section maybe just a half an hour left here, just to maybe round out the discussion is the idea of being this distributed. This is from 143b to 144b. So if being is something and the one is something different, it is not by its being one that the one is different from being, nor by its being being that being is other than one. On the contrary, they are different from each other by difference and otherness, of course. And so difference is not the same as oneness or being, obviously not. Now, if we select from them, say, being in difference or being in oneness or oneness and difference, do we not in each selection choose a certain pair that is correctly called both? Well, how so? As follows, we can say being, we can. And again, we can say one, that too. So hasn't each of the pair been mentioned? Yes. What about when I say being and oneness? Haven't both been mentioned? Certainly. And if I say being and difference or difference and oneness and so on, in each case, don't I speak of both? Yes. Can things that are correctly called both be both, but not two? Well, it cannot. If there are two things, is there any way for each member of the pair not to be one? Well, not at all. Therefore, since in fact, each pair taken together turns out to be two, each member would be one, apparently. And if each of them is one, when any one is added to any couple, doesn't the total prove to be three? Yes. And isn't three odd and two even? Doubtless. There's that mention of the odd and even that I was looking for. And then it goes on. What about this? Since there are two, must there not also be twice? And since there are three, thrice? If in fact two is two times one and three is three times one, necessarily. Since there are two and twice, must there not be two times two? And since there are three and thrice, must there not be three times three? Well, doubtless. And again, if there are three and they are two times, and if there are two and they are three times, must there not be two times three and three times two? There certainly must. Therefore, there would be even times even, odd times odd, odd times even, and even times odd. Well, that's so. Then if that is so, do you think there is any number that need not be? In no way at all. Therefore, if one is, there must also be number, necessarily. But if there is number, there would be many in an unlimited multitude of beings. Or doesn't number, unlimited in multitude, also prove to partake of being? It certainly does. So if all number partakes of being, each part of number would also partake of it? Yes. So has being been distributed to all things which are many? And is it missing from none of the beings, neither the smallest nor the largest? Or is it unreasonable even to ask that question? How could being be missing from any of the beings? Well, no way. So being is chopped up into beings of all kinds, from the smallest to the largest possible and is the most divided thing of all, and the parts of being are countless, quite so. Therefore, its parts are the most numerous of things, the most numerous indeed. 
So here we're maybe getting back to the beginning of the dialogue where the potential difference between the words of Zeno, that things are not many, and the words of Parmenides, that things are one, comes to the fore. When we talk about number, what do we mean when we say multitude and and one? Uh, And if things are not multiple, does that mean that they are one? And then the idea of being being distributed or being being chopped up into things, it's almost like being is being divided into fractions. And then the sum of all the fractions is one, which is being. The sum of all probability is, in fact, mathematically one. And so is this maybe what they're getting at here? And it reminds me of the analogy that Parmenides spoke about at the beginning of the dialogue with Socrates. So Socrates was written out of the dialogue early at the beginning, and then young Aristotle comes into play in all of this back and forth logic with Parmenides. But in the beginning, when Parmenides was speaking to Socrates about the divisibility of the forms, he put this analogy, if there was a group of people and you put a sail over the group of people, would each person get a share of a part of the sail or of the whole sail? And so I, I'm just, I'm, I picture this analogy, this crowd of people standing around, a big piece of fabric is put over their heads. And does each person have a part of the whole of that big piece of fabric or just that particular part of the fabric that's over their heads? And I think this is really a, a great analogy for the forms and whether the forms are divisible or whether a form is not divisible, whether the form is a whole. And this difference between whole and part then pervades this entire dialogue. Does a form necessarily have to be a whole? I think that's the conclusion that, that they're arriving at in, in this dialogue, that the form has to be a whole, but that the whole can contain parts. And again, that brings me back to the analogy that I, I drew on the screen at the beginning of the, the circle that contains the cross at 90 degrees inside the two diameters, the, the diameter being the longest distance inside the circle that can, that can separate two points in the circumference, the, the longest distance. So you can get two diameters crossed at 90 degrees, and each of those is the longest distance inside the, the circle from one point to, to the opposite point, and yet they, they equal at the very center, they equal each other. Is there some analogy here that is really helpful in terms of what Parmenides brought about at the beginning of the dialogue and that reference to the sale over the people, the divisibility of the forms? Is it a question of the forms being chopped up into number, as they're putting it here? I find this a really interesting, a really interesting discussion in this particular section. It made me think too about the Timaeus, and I've got a section from the Timaeus 37D to 38C that I can read on the on the cover page as well, but we'll go to JK first. It seems like from the uh, from individual perspective, you have to begin with a part, right? Uh, and understand that part that you are in contact with and, you know, develop there in terms of becoming to understand the whole from the part to the universal and not the other way around. So so I, I, I can see the, how he's doing it with mathematics, you know, beginning with the basic numbers and multiplying out and then arriving at the universal idea of number as the whole. It's an interesting observation. I wonder if if our perception of the parts is particularly pervasive when we exercise perception of physical things. So in our perception of physics, are we particularly susceptible to perceiving parts and not the whole? Whereas in the reason, maybe we're more capable of perceiving first the whole and then the parts. I wonder if that's the case. I, I kind of I think of myself and the way I perceive, and I guess if I take my mind out of the physical realm, close my eyes, and then try to imagine in my mind, I think I'm more capable at that point of imagining what the whole might be, and then 
and then dividing it into parts. Whereas if I'm just looking around the world, I'm seeing all of the different parts in constant motion, in constant change, in constant difference. And maybe we're more inclined to see the parts when we use physical perception. It's a really fascinating observation that you made. And I wonder if, if, if as well, it, it relates to the difference between deductive reasoning and inductive reasoning. I, I always think of deductive reasoning as from the part to the whole, and then inductive reasoning, I think of as the whole to the part. And maybe we're capable of both, but we have to exercise both. And maybe that's part of this method of hypothesis that the Parmenides is telling us, that we have to go from one way to the other. So when we're right. looking, when we're thinking of that which is, we're looking at the parts and if we're thinking of that which is not, which is the differences, we're thinking about the whole and relating it to the parts. Does that make sense? Well, if you uh, take it from uh, the uh, Platonic view of forms, according to Plato, we, we always be perceiving things in, in accordance with those forms. You're already starting out from a rational category of, of interpretation, right? You're interpreting what is the thing out there in the world that is, and then um, already universalizing and seeing the, the whole in the part. And which is what I think what Kant's categories of understanding are doing is an interpretation of the phenomenon. It's not the direct experience of the phenomenon. But from Bergson's point of view, his understanding of perception is that it is a direct, you know, experience of the of the images of the, the matter in the world. And we respond to those images in our minds through a process of uh, representation and, and duration. Yeah, there's a different ways of looking at it. Interesting. Yeah. And, and do we interpret things according to the forms? I, you know, I guess being rather a fan of Plato's logic, I would say yes. Do we interpret things according to representations? I would say that's more problematic because how do we represent things? And that goes maybe back to the third man argument. Do we represent things by the categories? If we see a group of items and we categorize them as large items, that's maybe one way we can represent things. But if we see one particular thing as large, do we then recategorize other things in relation to that one thing? So do we, do we represent things in relation to a whole category, which is somehow established, or do we represent things in relation to one thing, which is representative of the category? And so I guess that's the problem with the infinite regress that I'm seeing if we do that. So maybe number is the key to this. Maybe representing things in relation to number is the, the way that we get out of the infinite regress. You know, it's, it's an interesting contrast that you drew with your comment there. I think that's well worth thinking about. Well, if we uh, think of perception with the most basic interaction that animals have, and we are part of the animal um, nature in which we uh, respond by sensation and perception to the uh, needs of the body in terms of what our relationship with the environment is. How we perceive depends on what our what our body needs. Like the basic amoeba re responds to sensation and other higher organisms gradually also respond in terms of function and, and sensation and perception to their bodily needs. Just the difference is that with our a more hard developed intellectual notion of perception, uh, process of perception. We're doing the same thing, but the response in terms of meeting our bodily needs is delayed. And so our consciousness or brain function is to delay that response. And so instead of just responding immediately, we delay in order to make a choice of how we satisfy our bodily functions. And that kind of perception would be more direct. So representation would be a kind of delay function it's not anything else beyond that.
when we perceive something with our eyes, we're, we're experiencing vibrations of light. And we hear something, it's the vibrations of sound. So it is an interaction with, uh, with the, uh, your environment. Yeah, for sure. And, and certainly a physical perception is of vibrations of energy. I mean, different, different wavelengths, different frequencies of energy lead to physical perceptions in the five senses. When you spoke of the delay, it made me think of, or the delay in our perception, you know, our perception being maybe a higher order of, of all of the known species on this planet. That delay maybe is a reference to what we talked about earlier, the definition that Parmenides provides of the instant. And that was in the part that I read from 156C to 157B. That instant maybe is that time for the delay for our perception to take hold. And certainly, you know, modern science tells us that our physical perception of the packets of energy that are coming at our five senses, there is a one-tenth of a second delay before our minds make sense, make meaning out of those impulses of energy that are arriving in our five senses. We are all operating with that same one-tenth of a second delay. So that the light that I see coming into my eyes doesn't make any sense of meaning until one-tenth of a second later when my brain tells me what it means. So there is that delay. Maybe that's the instant that Parmenides is talking about. You also raise, I think, an important point that takes us back to the Republic where the soul was divided in three parts. There's the appetites or needs, which is one part that we perceive. And there's the spirit, which is the drive that moves us to that or, or to reason. And then mediating the needs in the spirit or the appetites in the spirit is reason itself. We've got these three parts, and that's our unique capacity as a species to harmonize these three parts with knowledge, which, as Socrates said in Mino, is recollection, and then further went on to say is the account of the reasons why. So maybe it's our ability to make that account of the reasons why, but account of the reasons why requires an ordering in time so that we know what came first, what, what the causes and effects were. So the cause comes first, the effect comes later, and we have to order all of that in our minds in order to be able to exercise reason. Maybe that, that exercise of reason occurs in the instant, which is neither change nor rest. It, it's just that blank moment where anything is possible. Without that blank point, would we have any agency? What's well, a fascinating thought as we think about the nature of time and what we do with time. And also the question I think was mentioned earlier, do we think that we are capable of knowing everything? Or is it more important that we admit that some things are simply not knowable and therefore subject to reason? It's a challenge that Plato raises, and I think a lot of people have trouble with that particular challenge because it seems that, at least in a lot of scientific discourse now, there is a tendency to think that everything is observable, everything is subject to empirical observation. Maybe some things aren't. I mean, how can things in the realm of becoming or in the realm of being which is changeless, eternal, not subject to increase or decrease, not subject to difference, how can things in that realm be observed empirically? If they can't, then our observations are limited to the realm of becoming, which is subject to limits. Yeah, that's, that was a point that um, Kant was making, right? The, the limitations of uh, our reason to understand uh, what the ultimate reality is, the thing in itself. We only see, experience the phenomenon, the appearances. And even those are interpretations of our categories of understanding, which are limited. 
I like that. And I think the more we admit that, the more we can get around it. I'd like to think it's not a fatal flaw in our system of reasoning. It's just something that we have to remember is there. And it's necessary, I think, in the construction of the universe. In Timaeus, I think it's explained why that's necessary. Right. Of course, a quantum physicist would critique that Kantian um, as a kind of pessimism that we are you know, limited in our mm-hmm. even effort to try to understand what the quantum is. So they, they would plunge ahead with that kind of investigation and hopefully to uh, arrive at some uh, ultimate understanding, right? Right. This is why Plato is so absolutely relevant in my thinking to today's science is, is it really does relate to our understanding of things. And the more we know about things, the more we need to know about our perception of things to know whether our perception is correct and whether we are applying the correct reason. Because I, I think there's a lot of reasoning that needs to be sorted out still, especially in our understanding of quantum mechanics. Just in the, in the few minutes that remain, I just wanted to bring attention back to Timaeus. And I think maybe in season three, I'll do an update of Timaeus because Timaeus was actually our first few episodes in season one. I think I've changed the method of presentation since then. I'd like to maybe just take another look at Timaeus again, maybe in season three, because it does keep coming up. And certainly this section, and I did highlight it in our our second episode in Timaeus in, in season one, this is from 37D to 38C. And I think it relates very much to what we were talking, what we're talking about today in terms of time. Well, let me just read, read this bit. Now, it was a living thing's nature, and, and here Plato capitalized living and thing, capital L, capital T. So it's, he's talking about the universe as a living thing. So now it's a living thing's nature to be eternal, but it isn't possible to bestow eternity fully upon anything that is begotten. And so he began to think of making a moving image of eternity. At the same time as he brought order to the universe, he would make an eternal image moving according to number of eternity remaining in unity. This number, of course, is what we now call time. For before the heavens came to be, there were no days or nights, no months or years. But now, at the same time as he framed the heavens, he devised their coming to be. These are all parts of time, and was and will be are forms of time that have come to be. Such notions we unthinkingly but incorrectly apply to everlasting being. For we say that it was and will be, but according to the true account, only is is appropriately said of it. Was and will be are properly said about the becoming that passes in time. For these two are motions, but that which is always changeless and motionless cannot become either older or younger in the course of time. It neither ever became so, nor is it now such that it has become so, nor will it ever be so in the future. I just wanted to recall that understanding of time and in particular the reference about eternity remaining in unity. And this number, of course, is what we now call time. When he says, of course, I think maybe he's being a little bit cute there because we don't necessarily see that, of course, but maybe we're seeing more of that now that we've gone through the Parmenides, or at least an overview of the Parmenides, that time does associate itself with number, and the first number is one. Certainly, if we think of fractions, one is the smallest numerator and the smallest denominator of a fraction. One is the sum of all probability. One is a number of other things. One is... One is other things as well, but you know, I think there's some mathematical things about one that make it unique. And certainly in the ordering of time, as we talked about today, one is the first in, in an order of multiples. 
the, I just wanted to also highlight in the notes, we won't have time to go over it, but I did put in the notes a section where I sorted through the, the text. I did a search in the text for the words extremities and limit, because again, this is the, the proposition that I presented in my introduction today that we perceive according to differences and differences are based on limits. And so I just would highlight these sections that I, I found the words extremities and limit in these different sections. And 137E, which is probably my favorite two sentences of all in the Parmenides, round is surely that whose extremities are equidistant in every direction from the middle, and straight is that whose middle stands in the way of two extremities. And it also appears in uh, 145A to B, which they talk again about straight and round. In 158D to E, they talk about limits in itself or in relation to the whole and the parts. And then also there is 165A and that quote that I, I read in my introduction from 165A to B uh, that I thought is particularly helpful. That was the, the statement that, so every being that you grasp in thought must, I take it, be chopped up and dispersed because surely without oneness, it would always be grasped as a mass. I really like that presentation of, of that. So just for reference, these are the points that I, I found referring to extremities and limits, and which makes me think that this dialogue is really all about our perception and our perception being of differences. But it's a way to tell us how to unify our perception to one. That is, that is the conclusion that I would offer. Does anybody else have any parting thoughts, any other different opinions on this? And any any thoughts on where we should head next in season three when we get back to the Parmenides? You say we're going to go back to the Parmenides? I think we will get back to the Parmenides. I, I think it will be necessary to, to get back to some of these basic concepts that are being presented here in terms of the whole and the parts, for example, in terms of multitude, in terms of number, even and odd, same and different. These concepts are really pervasive through all the forms. And as I said, in the Parmenides, all of this analysis is done with reference to the five key forms that are presented in the sophist, and in particular, the different. And I think we'll find the different appears very often in, in the rest of the dialogues that we'll, we'll touch on in season three. So in this dialogue, is Plato agreeing with Parmenides to some extent? I think so. I think so. I think all relates to one. Or relates to one. Relates to but one, he's yeah. also uh, complicated by uh, insisting that it has to include the multiple, right? Absolutely. But Parmenides' uh, notion of the one is more uh, kind of a fixed, uh, motionless, at rest one. Yeah, it's a good question. I think Parmenides' notion of the one appears to relate to an absolute universal truth. And to the extent that it's absolute and universal, it has either the potential of change or rest, and therefore both. And nothing can be understood without understanding of the one. That's what I'm taking to be the point of Parmenides. But in many words, <laughs> in, in many complicated words, and in many complicated sequences of logic, and we've certainly seen some of those complicated sequences of logic in today's discussion. In Plato, nothing is presented as absolutely definitively conclusive. It's, it is always left up to us to arrive at our own conclusions. He is saying that Plato is saying that the forms are a kind of a, there is a oneness there, right, of the mm -hmm. form, and that becoming is uh, contained within the circle of this one. That, that's the way I see it, yeah. That all forms relate to each other through the different, which is pervades all the forms, 
that being cannot be negated. So being always is, but becoming is always full of differences, that the forms cannot be divided, that the forms are differentiated by the different, and but the forms are all part of a unity. But this uni unity contains differences, and then the differences occur within these containers in which we put things in our perception. So do you understand how that relates to the idea of the empty set? The empty set would suggest that there is no one, there's no whole, right? The empty set, it's, it's a good question. I, you know, maybe that's the instant. Maybe that's the instant that we talked about where anything is, that's the pure potential, perhaps. Okay. Where, where things are in a superposition of states, to use some quantum terminology, a superposition of change and rest, a superposition of same and different, that being can exist in that superposition. And I think, you know, we are finding that in our understanding of quantum mechanics, that there are these superpositions. And certainly that's how the quantum computer operates in the qubit. The qubit finds that superposition. The problem with the qubit is they have not been able to maintain its coherence. I think the, the limit of qubits now that have maintained coherence is 216. That was the new development that I spoke about, I think, last time. But maintaining that coherence in superposition is, is the challenge that we face with quantum mechanics now. But I think Plato is saying that that superposition can exist in, in the combination of the forms. Can you guys describe what that superposition is in terms of quantum mechanics? I think if that's where it has to lead logically. Uh -huh. is to understand that and to understand what happens when we manipulate that, when we apply our own processes on that. What happens, what are the consequences? The very important message of Parmenides is to understand the consequences because that's what he says in the method of, of hypothesis. Hypothesize if it is, if it is not, and then in each case, the consequences. And so we need to perhaps understand the consequences of what we're doing with the qubit. Because I think now each, each developer of applications for the qubit is thinking maybe just about the consequences for that specific application, but not thinking about the fact that ultimately all qubits will entangle to get ultimately. If we get past this limit on entanglement, so we're not just entangling 216 qubits, we're entangling all qubits, then what are the consequences? Maybe that's where we need to start thinking inductively and understanding the whole, and then what happens to the parts. And maybe that's part of the ethical discussion about the quantum computer in particular. And honestly, as much as I've followed the whole discussion about quantum computing, I have seen very little discussion about ethics. But I think the consequences are something that need to be thought about because we don't understand all of the consequences of how quantum mechanics works. So, and, and hopefully we can continue to discuss more of that too in season three. I think, I think that will feature in our discussions. I want to thank everybody for being here. Uh, and, 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 you know, particularly we, we have some new members here today, which is great. And in particular, those who have been with us throughout the entire season and indeed uh, through a lot of season one as well. You know, so we've had great discussions in many dialogues in, in the two seasons and looking forward very much to season three, which will start in September. So we'll take a, a break over the summer. We'll take a break from the group discussions over the summer, the group discussions on the Dialogues of Plato, and we'll resume in September with the Cratylus. And then we'll move on, whether it will follow directly the Cratylus or whether it'll be a little bit later, we'll follow on with the laws at some point. 
And we'll touch on a number of Plato's other dialogues as well that we haven't touched on already. So I'm looking forward to that in season three when we resume our group discussions. And I, and I do hope that those who are here today will, will consider joining us again in, in September because it's, it's been a great learning experience. I've certainly learned so much from preparing these and then from the perspectives that people bring to the discussion that I hadn't thought about before. And I think these are great perspectives. And I think it really benefits us to exchange thoughts and ideas and just to find the common ground among these ideas, because we can all think along particular paths, but to, to find the, the common thing that ties it together, I think really helps in the understanding of the logic. And there's certainly some very complicated logic to, to Plato, but I think at the core of it, there is a certain beauty to the logic, which really draws me to, to Plato and a certain simplicity as everything ties to a specific core. Maybe that core is the one. So it, it's something that I very much look forward to is season three. We'll start that in, in September. I just want to say that in the meantime, we'll have uh, two interviews. I'll be posting in July, two interviews, really fascinating interviews that I've already conducted. And I hope to conduct some more over the course of the summer to, to keep the podcast going over the summer. So I would say if, if, if you're following Plato's pod over the course of the summer, we'll have some more material for you. I also wanted to tell people who are here that on July 6th, Darren and I will be co-hosting a discussion on the subject of Why People Hate Plato, which is the thought-provoking title of a recent podcast episode of the Ancient Greece Declassified podcast. And the host of that podcast in that episode presents five reasons why people hate Plato. And we thought that would be a really interesting discussion. It won't take any reading to prepare for. I would ask people to listen to that podcast episode. It's an hour. And then we'll just discuss what he says and see what our perception of that is. And, and if people dislike Plato or their misunderstandings, perhaps, in that dislike, or are there other ways that things can be presented? Uh, so that I'm looking forward to that discussion, why people hate Plato. And let's see if we can change that perception, perhaps, of those who do. We'll have that. And as I said, some interviews over the summer as well. Again, thanks everyone for being here. Great to have these discussions. And I certainly look forward to returning to these uh, groups in September. And I want to wish everybody a great summer in the meantime. And please do follow Plato's Pod. So I'll end the recording now. And as I do, I would just invite anybody who wishes to stay online for Plato's Cafe, a casual half hour discussion of Plato or philosophy in general. You're more than welcome to do so. And otherwise, I look forward to reconvening in September. So thank you very much. <laughs>